passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As we begin this morning, I want you to take a moment and think about the time you became a Christian. What age were you? Were you four, 14, 40? Think about where you were. Was it in your bedroom praying with your parents? Was it at a church camp? Or was it over a cup of coffee with a friend that unbeknownst to you had been praying for you for years? Also think about why. Why did you become a Christian? Did you become a Christian because you loved God? Or were you simply just scared of hell like I was when I became a Christian at a very young age? I admit it's less than admirable, uh, and so oftentimes I'll point to a different part of my life where I actually understood what the gospel meant, where I decided to give my life to Christ as, a, as an expression of gratitude for what he had done for me. Maybe you became a Christian during a really dark time in your life when things were extremely difficult and you vowed to God and says, if you get me out of this, then I'll give, your, give my life to you. Louis Zamperini, who is the uh, focus of the book Unbroken, as well as the movie Unbroken, uh, made a vow like this when he was in the midst of the Pacific Ocean on a raft without food or water for over 40 days. In the midst of a storm, he said to God, get me out of this and I will give my life to you. And he did. It just took him several decades to get there. Martin Luther, one of the most important people, not only in church history, but also in world history because of the start of the Reformation, prayed something similar. Martin Luther was a young law student, and he was in the midst of a thunderstorm, and he was afraid that he was going to die. And he shouted out to God, if you save me, I will give my life to you. And sure enough, God saved him. And sure enough, Martin Luther became a monk. And it was through that experience that just a few years later, he uh, realized one of the most important things in church history, which is sad that it had gotten lost, but that is this, that grace is the key to salvation, not our works. How did you become a Christian? What were your motives for becoming a Christian? This morning, we're going to look at a conversion story of sorts. It's a conversion story of Jacob. From the book of Genesis. Now, like us, Jacob's conversion is messy. It doesn't stick the first time. Jacob has less than perfect motives for becoming a Christian, if you will, to use that term lightly. And it took him over 20 more years to leave his life behind, to leave behind his life of scheming and deception to follow God. And yet, through it all, God is patient. Through it all, God is gracious to him. Even though Jacob has some very hard, difficult times ahead, God is with him through it all. And the good news of today is that God will be with you through it all as well. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 28, where we're going to be this morning. As we approach Genesis 28, I think it's appropriate just to to remind us of what happened last week. Last week, we were looking at basically the episode of, of God's first reality TV show called Israel's Most Dysfunctional Family. 
And Isaac, the leader of this family, decided to stick it to God by trying to choose his son Esau to make the, the heir of his property rather than Jacob. This is, of course, after God said that Jacob would be the one that would be blessed as the heir. But Isaac isn't the only one who is doing something less than admirable. Esau, after he had lost his inheritance to his brother Jacob, decides to sneak around with his dad to try to steal it back. Of course, Rebekah doesn't think that God can fulfill his promise on his own, and so she decides to step in and take care of things for him because God needs her help. And then there's Jacob. Jacob doesn't think about any single person except for himself. He only cares about what he wants. As you can imagine, this situation blows up in their faces. Isaac, the one who wanted to uh, turn his back on God, is tricked into giving and doing exactly what God wanted. Esau, the one who tried to swindle his brother, is swindled again. Rebecca, the epitome of a helicopter mom, is left without her son. And Jacob, the one who had done everything to acquire more, is left with nothing. You see, Esau is understandably angry after all of this happens, and so he decides to do what he thinks is the normal thing to do when you're wronged, and that is kill his brother. Rebecca overhears Esau's venting, and so thankfully she intervenes. She takes it upon herself to step in to protect Jacob because, of course, no one else is going to do that. And so she decides to send Jacob 600 miles away. She decides to send Jacob to his uh, uncle, Laban, to her brother. And she sends him this 600-mile journey on foot without any companions, with very few supplies. But, of course, it's not her decision to make. It's Isaac's decision to send his son out. And so first she has to convince her, her husband to send Jacob to her brother Laban. And, and Rebecca, ever the puppet master, begins to orchestrate things behind the scenes. And she approaches Isaac and she reminds Isaac of how awful Esau's wives are. Women, be thankful that you don't have a mother-in-law like Rebecca. She begins to remind Isaac, of how awful these women are that their son has married and says, you don't want Jacob to marry women like that, do you? And of course, it works. Isaac remembers all the lengths that his father went through to provide a good bride for him, and so he decides to send his son Jacob on the long, trying, difficult journey to Haran and to Laban. If you have a Bible, I invite you to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 28, where we're going to begin this morning. It says this, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him and said, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel the Aramean. The brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. 
as we look at this passage and we pick up here in chapter 28, we see that this takes place right after Rebecca and Isaac are having this conversation. And Isaac charges Jacob to, char, to, to find a good wife. And, and if we look at the narrative of chapter 27, and we look at the narrative of the beginning here of chapter 28, it's really, really fast. It's a quick-paced narrative. And it's, all, it's very likely that this story, that this moment takes place within the next day or so after Jacob has stolen everything from his brother, after he has dressed up as Esau to deceive his father. In all likelihood, this is the first time that Isaac and Jacob speak to one another since Jacob tricked him. And yet there's a change here in Isaac. If Isaac is still upset about this, he doesn't let on what is going on. And it seems that Isaac has accepted what has happened. He's accepted that Jacob has these, this role in God's plan. That God has chosen Jacob. And nothing that Isaac can do will change that. We begin to see that Isaac, this man of faith in Genesis chapter 22, when he is on the Mount of Moriah with his father, this man of faith that we see in parts of Genesis 26, where he decides to not flee to Egypt, but instead stay in the land during a famine. This man of faith in Genesis 26, who responds to, uh, to being caught in sin with great repentance, is starting to emerge again. This is the Isaac that we are starting to see. Like a marathon runner who is beginning to get back in shape. Like a man who is beginning to flex his spiritual muscles for the first time that haven't been used in ages. Isaac is returning to form. The cobwebs are being blown off. And Isaac, the man who was once a great man of faith, is beginning to act like it again. He remembers his father's great commitment he remembers his father's great desire to follow with obedience God's plan. And he takes a similar approach. He tasks Jacob with a similar uh, task that Abraham's servant was given in Genesis 24 to go and to find a wife. And so that's exactly what Jacob will do. But before he sent out he doesn't stop there. Isaac blesses Jacob with the same promise that had been given to Abraham. The promise that Isaac had refused to give to Jacob at first, the one that Jacob had longed for, the one he had tried to steal, is now given to him freely, without scheming. Notice what Isaac says here in these few verses, in verses 3 through 5. First, he refers to God as God Almighty. This is the same name for God that is used one other time here in the book of Genesis so far. And that's in Genesis chapter 17, when God introduces himself to Abraham, right as Abraham is doubting whether God is actually able to provide a child for him as he is 99 years old. And God says, I am God Almighty. Trust in me. I am powerful enough to fulfill my promise. Isaac uses the exact same name for God here, reminding Jacob that he is able to keep his promise. That God doesn't need Jacob's help to keep his promise. It's also a reminder to Isaac. Isaac, this man who had turned his back on God, who tried to pass off God's word and, and try to give the blessing to a different man 
is a reminder to him that God will not be thwarted. You cannot outmaneuver God. That's the first part of this blessing. But notice what he says. He says, I pray that God will make you fruitful and multiply. This is the exact same phrase, the same task, the same commissioning that God gives to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is the exact same calling that is placed on Abraham and on Noah to fill the earth with children. And it is an assurance of many children here for Jacob. That's significant. Because here is Jacob. His life is being threatened by his brother. He has no wife. He has no children. And yet God has promised him many children. That's exactly what's being said here in this company of people's language that's used next. He's not just going to have many children, but just like Abraham has promised to be the father of many nations, so also Jacob will have many peoples come forth from him. What Isaac is doing here is accepting God's plan. He's passing on the mantle of patriarch to his son, Jacob. And then notice one of the final things that he says here. He says that I will give you possession of the land, or God will give you uh, possession of the land. This is the blessing of Abraham. It is focusing on the land, the land that Jacob is about to leave. He will one day receive because God is faithful. God is strong and God is powerful. He is God Almighty. Now, this blessing is significant for the content, but I think even more important is the timing. As we just mentioned, this timing is impeccable. This is a blessing right as he is about to leave the land and he has promised land. This is a blessing that he is receiving to have many children when he has no wife, let alone children. Isaac is blessing his son, yes, but he's also reminding his son of God's commitment to this family. And if God has truly chosen Jacob, then God will not fail. Jacob doesn't need to be concerned with his current situation. I think it's a little ironic here. If you look at Genesis 27, Jacob schemes and schemes and schemes and schemes to get this promise from his father. And he's left with nothing. And yet here, in the moment of dark despair, as he's being sent out from his family, this promise is freely given to him. We'll never know if this was God's original intention. We'll never know if this is how God intended for things to play out, if Jacob would have been obedient, if God would have used an obedient Isaac If Jacob would have just trusted God rather than his own ability, maybe this is how it would have happened in the first place. If Isaac would have trusted God's word rather than trying to circumvent it, maybe he would have never seen murderous threats breathed out from one son to another. Now, there's an important word here. God fulfills his promises. God's purposes will always be accomplished But it's so much better to do it God's way. God's purposes, God's way are always better. The actions of Jacob, the actions of Isaac, the actions of Rebecca here destroy this family. God's purposes, God's ways are always better. It's better for us as a formation of disciples as we follow God. 
It's better for our families if we desire to follow God faithfully. It is better for our community. Shortcuts may present themselves, but God's purposes, God's ways are always better. It's a reminder to us here as we continue in this passage. Pick up in verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboioth. Right here, we see something absolutely fascinating taking place in Esau's approach to this situation. You see, unlike the supposed blessing of Esau in secret, Jacob's sending to Padanaram would have been done in public. Esau would have been there. He would have watched the entire thing, and he would have noticed his father's emphasis on not marrying Canaanite women. If we look at the end of chapter 26, we see that Esau did just that. Esau had married not just one, but two Hittite women. He had done this to fulfill his desires, to fulfill his appetites, not caring what God wanted. And so Esau, as he's standing watching his brother receive every single thing that he wanted, sees this commissioning, and he decides to do something about it. He thinks to himself, well, if mom and dad want Jacob to marry someone that's not a Canaanite, but rather instead they want him to marry a cousin, then I'm going to go marry a cousin as well. And so he approaches a cousin. Except unlike Jacob, who is sent far away to the brother of Rebekah, to Laban, he goes to his father's brother Ishmael, and he marries one of his daughters. And in doing so, he completely misses the point. The point here is not about marrying a cousin. I cannot overemphasize that enough. The point here is about being faithful to the promise that God has given to Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that he would be a family of many nations, and that family would be reckoned through Isaac. And Esau, by going to Ishmael, the one that God had rejected is removing himself further from God rather than closer to God's will. A sin does not right a sin. Increased polygamy, increased marrying with pagans is not the quick path to God's blessing. I think Esau here is the perfect example of what we call a natural man. Paul uses this language in 2 Corinthians. He describes it this way. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians. He says this, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, what Paul is describing, what Esau is doing here, is he's doing something that he thinks is right, but it's even worse because he doesn't understand the ways of God. Friends, I think we see this quite often in our culture. Why is it that it's so difficult and sometimes impossible for an unbeliever to please God? Well, it's because they don't understand how God works. 
They just don't understand how God works. Esau tries and tries to please his parents. He tries to please God, and yet he just dives deeper into sin. Tries to do the right thing, and yet he completely misses the point. I would venture a guess that if we took some time to look at our past lives, times before we were Christians, and we could identify times where we did the exact same thing, where we did things that we thought were right, But then later on, we saw that we were just driving ourselves further and further away from God. The couple that is not married but has multiple children decides instead of getting married, they're just going to move in together. They think that they're doing what is right. But indeed, they're moving further away from God. Legalizing same-sex marriage is very popular today in our culture. Indeed, it's already happened. And one of the big arguments that we see from the secular culture is that Jesus told us to love others. They just can't understand why Christians are missing the point of Jesus' main purpose here on earth. To love others. They can't understand why Christians would object to what Jesus, quote-unquote, clearly teaches They try to do the right thing, but miss the point. The ways of God are impossible for the natural person to discern. And Esau is so clearly representing that right here. As we continue, we see that Esau fades to the background. Jacob fades to the background. Excuse me, Isaac fades to the background. Rebecca fades to the background. For the next 20 years, we don't know what happens to them. We can only speculate. The narrative follows Jacob as he journeys to Paddan Aram, to Haran, to meet his uncle's family. Let's pick up in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now don't pass over the difficulty of this journey. Remember, when we first were introduced to Jacob, we saw that this was a man who was kind of a homebody. He loved being able to return home, to return to his own bed. If you hate camping, then you know exactly what Jacob is like. And camping is exactly what Jacob is having to do for the next few months. Jacob is journeying on in a land where wolves and lions are prevalent. He is journeying on where marauders and thieves wander, looking for people like Jacob off on their own to take advantage of. It's no wonder why Esau doesn't try to sneak off and kill Jacob after he leaves, because he likely thought that Jacob would be killed by something else anyway. And Jacob, as he's on this 600-mile journey by himself, with no one to talk to, has no support, is forced to leave the only family that he has ever known with few supplies as he's journeying. He begins to wander aimlessly. If you notice in verse 11 here, it says, and he came to a certain place. That phrase, certain place, is just referring to the wandering aimlessly that Jacob is doing here. The randomness where he is beginning to wander around in the desert. This is Jacob's darkest time. His scheming has left him with nothing And it has left him with no one. This is a man who is depressed. This is a man who is lost, who is alone, who as he lays himself down to sleep is not sure if he is going to wake up in the morning. As we continue, I just want to take a moment and say, if that's you, 
If you find yourself in a similar situation, or if you've experienced that before, the good news of Genesis 28 is that God is with you. God will not leave you. His presence is secure. And it may still be difficult for you as you go through the darkest times of your life. But God is present. Let's see how Jacob realizes that in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on top of the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you, shall, which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Many of us have heard this story before. We've heard of what is called oftentimes Jacob's Ladder. But I don't think that that's an accurate description here. In this dream, what Jacob sees is not a ladder, but he sees really a stairway. This word here that, that's translated ladder in this translation, and probably some of yours as well, uh, can be translated as ladder, but it also can be used as stairway. And what we see here is that a number of angels are using this stairway at the exact same time. And if you've ever, tried to, if you've ever seen multiple people try to use a ladder at the exact same time, you know exactly why this is a stairway. And so, so that's one thing. This is a stairway. It's, it's not a ladder. Second, this is not Jacob's ladder. This is God's stairway. God is the one who owns this. God is the one who is in control because God is the one who stands over and above it. Why don't we go ahead and throw that, uh, that picture up here for us. Now, this is a picture of what this likely would have looked like. In ancient times, uh, it was fairly common for different religions to build stairways to heaven. That's where Led Zeppelin got their idea. They, they look, I, I guess I can't, I can't back that up. Um, but this is a stairway to heaven, which is very common in ancient times. People would oftentimes build these temple stairways. And we have a name for this. They're called ziggurats. They were known to be gates between heaven and and between earth. In Genesis chapter 11, that's exactly what the Tower of Babel is. It is a building project by humanity in order to build one of these stairways to heaven, to get to heaven, and to overthrow God. And of course, as we all know, that building project failed miserably. And yet as in Babel, they attempted to build a stairway to God. Here we see God revealing the stairway. God is revealing the bridge that gaps the giant chasm between him and humanity. It is the gap that humanity is unable to bridge. And it is here at Bethel that Jacob sees, in all seriousness, Jacob sees the way to heaven. He sees the way to heaven. He sees God himself standing at the top of this stairway. He's sending emissaries to do who knows what all over the world. And God speaks. God speaks. This is the first time that Jacob has ever heard God speak. 
And notice what God calls himself. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. What's notably absent is I am the God of Jacob. God does not call him his God. He does not say that I am your God. This statement here, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and this silence afterwards is a subtle rebuke for Jacob. What God is saying is, I am the God of the man that you just swindled. The man that you just tried to take advantage of. The man you tried to coerce this blessing out of. I am his God. And in the silence, it's almost as if God is saying, you deceived your dad to steal the blessing that only I can give to you. Do you really think that you can steal from me? Do you really think that you can deceive me? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Jacob, will I be your God? And as Jacob is standing there, excuse me, he's laying there in this dream, God issues three promises to him. First, he issues him a promise of land. We already talked about as he's leaving the land, this is significant. God is giving him the land even as he is leaving it in uncertainty. God promises him offspring. Just as Isaac's prayer had asked for, God is blessing him with. He has given the Abrahamic promise. Very soon it will be God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. But the last thing that he says here is significant. God not only promises land, not only promises offspring, but he also promises his presence. He promises Jacob that he may be alone but he is never alone. God is with him, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of this dangerous journey that he has to continue on. God is with him. The message of this passage is clear, that Jacob, the one who only cares for himself, the, only, the man who is fleeing his family because of his own actions, here is encountering the God who says, I will be with you. I will walk with you. And here at Bethel, he is given the exact same promise that he has seen his father receive, that he saw his grandfather receive. And now as he receives this, he is forever changed. We see that change here in the last few verses of this chapter. Pick up in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of you that you and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob, after this experience, responds in five ways. And I think these are five key ways that we also should respond when we encounter God in our lives. First, as he encounters God, he is now forced to respond with conviction. Encountering God leads to conviction. Notice how he starts here in verse 16. He wakes from this sleep and then he says, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not 
know it. Jacob's words here are a little harsher in the Hebrew. He is indicting himself. He's saying, I should have known better. I should have known that this is what God is like. His entire view of God is changed with conviction. You see, up to this point, Jacob is a man who has been to church, if you will use that phrase. His dad is Isaac, after all, so he spends a lot of time at the altar in Beersheba. But up to this point, he's lived a relatively dual life. When he is at worship at the altar, he's on God's time, but the rest of his life is his. But now here, far from Beersheba, the place where he thinks that God dwells, far from the altar that his grandfather Abraham built, he encounters God in the wilderness. Jacob soon realizes his picture of God is not big enough. God is not just a God who is present in worship. God is not just a God who is present in church or at altars. He is a God everywhere. And friends, that's a conviction that we must also realize, that God is present everywhere. That's a good thing. And it's also a challenging thing, that God is with us on Sunday mornings. Yes, God is with us on Saturday nights. God is with us on Mondays at 9 a.m. God is with us at home, at work, at the Y. God is everywhere. And this conviction that Jacob experiences here is just a sliver of the conviction that takes place when we encounter God. See, Jacob is ashamed of his actions. He's ashamed of his lack of understanding about this God. In the same way, the presence of God uncovers our sin. The presence of God uncovers our own unrighteousness. Just like the sun transforms the day into the night, encountering God leads to conviction. That's the first thing that we see from Jacob. The second thing that we see from Jacob is this, that encountering God leads to reverence. Encountering God leads to reverence. It is not just conviction that we see from Jacob. It is also fear and awe. As he stands in the presence of God, he is afraid. The light of God has pierced his soul. It has laid bare all of the deepest, darkest secrets that he keeps. God is aware of every single lie, every act of selfishness, every moment of deceit. The presence of God here leads to fear. And that's a good thing. It's good to be uncomfortable because of God and his unwillingness to stand our sin. That doesn't mean that we stand condemned before God, but that God, being holy, cannot stand in the presence of unrighteousness. Jacob stands before God and he is rightly treading lightly before this God. Encountering God leads to reverence. Third thing is this, encountering God leads to remembrance. Notice what Jacob does. The next morning after he wakes up, he takes the stone that he was using for a pillow. uh, And so don't complain about your bed. He takes a stone that he was using for a pillow and he turns it up and he calls it a pillar. What's the significance here? To answer that, we're going to take a look at a hymn that many of us are likely familiar with. The second verse of Come Thou Fount. The second verse of Come Thou Fount says this. Here I raise my Ebenezer, daily by thy help I've come. 
and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to uh, interpose... He to bless me from danger interposes selfless blood, precious blood. Something along those lines. What, what's important here is that first phrase. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Now what on earth does that phrase mean? The phrase Ebenezer, the meaning of this word is really comes from two Hebrew words. The word Eben in Hebrew means stone. And the word Azer in Hebrew means help. That phrase Stone, uh, that phrase, here I raise my Ebenezer, is a phrase, here I raise my stone of help, is literally what that verse is saying. So what does that mean? What does that have to do with what Jacob is doing here? Well, if an Ebenezer is a stone of help, is actually a time, a way to remember what God has done in the past. Zach, you want to throw that next slide up here? It was very common in ancient times, when God would do something significant for you to turn a stone up like this as a way to remind yourself of God's presence in your life, a way to remind yourself of the way that God has worked on your behalf in the past. You can find these, they're not as common as they once were, but you can find these everywhere throughout ancient Israel. Every single time that something significant would happen, you can see people raising up stones, raising up pillars, reminding themselves of God. Reminding themselves of God at work on their behalf. That's what Jacob does here. Fresh off of encountering God, he lifts up his Ebenezer. Fresh off of encountering God, he reminds himself. He creates a way to remind himself of God at work in his life. Decades later, we see Jacob coming back to Bethel. It's the first time that he's been at Bethel since this moment. And as he gets to Bethel, he sees this stone. This stone is still standing. And there's a reminder to Jacob that God has promised him much. That God has promised him land. That God has promised him offspring. But even more so, God has promised to never leave him. And Jacob responds in worship. Friends, when we encounter God, we should also be intentional about creating ways to remind ourselves of God. Create ways to remind ourselves of what God has done for us. In my parents' home, I grew up in an infant baptism home. Uh, In my parents' home, there is this spot on the wall uh, where my sister's baptismal dress is hanging from when she was an infant. And while I I, uh, may disagree with the view of baptism that my parents hold, I think it's significant. That baptismal dress was a reminder not so much to my sister, but it was to my parents of the commitment that they had made. It was an Ebenezer. It was a standing stone to remind themselves of God at work on their behalf. In the same way, if you have a picture of your baptism, a video of your baptism, holding on to that as a stone of help, as an Ebenezer, as a reminder of God at work for you, can be greatly encouraging. Past journal entries that you have written as you've been encountering God through his word, as you've been reflecting on God's work in your life, they're not meant for you to just write and then never look at again. They are great opportunities to remember God's presence in your life to remember how God has been at work in your life. 
Think of ways to remind yourself. Think of ways to remember the stone of our help, God himself. That's the third thing. Fourth, encountering God leads to worship. Not only does Jacob turn this stone upright, but he also pours oil on it. This is an act of worship, and that's just an appropriate response to encountering God, to respond in worship. Conviction leads to reverence, leads to worship. But this isn't worship that's done out of obligation. It is worship that is a response of gratitude. And finally, the fifth thing that we see here is this. Encountering God leads to generosity. If you look at Jacob's life, the last things that he says in this chapter is a vow. He says, God, if everything that you have said comes true, then I'm going to give a tenth of everything that I own to you. He does this freely. God isn't forcing him. This isn't before, or this is before the tithe was instituted for Israel. Jacob has encountered grace, and he responds with giving. He responds with generosity. It is because of the grace that he has encountered that he responds with this gracious generosity in his finances. This is the same gracious generosity that we also respond when we give of our talents and of our time and of our own finances as well. Encountering God leads, leads to generosity. So we see conviction. We see fear. We see remembrance. We see worship. We see generosity. But here's the thing about Jacob's conversion. It was messy. For most people, it probably wouldn't have been noticeable at first. Jacob changed, yes. But when tough times came, he still reverted to his past. It took 20 more years and another vivid encounter with God to bring about the type of change that we would expect from this man. But that change starts here. That change starts right now to this man, Jacob. This man who has no interest in God. He only has interest in what God can give him. To this man who is not headed to Bethel. And Bethel, if you're aware, uh, if you're not aware, it just means house of God. This is a man who's not headed to the house of God to meet God. He's headed to Haran to meet his uncle Laban. This is a man who is scheming, seeking heaven, what God could give him here on earth. But he finds something better. He finds God himself. Perhaps you find yourself somewhat similar to Jacob. You're in a spot where you're not seeking God, but you're seeking the things of this world. Maybe in the past, that's what you were like, and then God revealed himself to you. And that encounter left you changed. Not perfect, but changed. Maybe you were seeking God for the wrong reasons, and then God revealed himself to you. And then you were changed. Not perfect, but changed. Now here's the thing. Jacob, in this vow, he's seeking God but he's seeking God for selfish reasons. They're not the most admirable reasons. The vow that he issues here, if you do this, God, then I will respond like this. It shows that he gets it, but not yet fully. The wonderful good news of this passage is that God is gracious anyway. 
God is gracious anyway. God has already promised Jacob his presence, and he's not going to change that promise. God is gracious. And I think that's just as amazing as the free gift of grace. That God is patient with us for our reasons for seeking him. You see, thousands of years later, a descendant of Jacob, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying right here is a reference to this moment in Genesis 28. Jesus is saying that he is the stairway. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is the gate to heaven. And the reason why we can be confident of God's presence is not because the gate to heaven can be found in a specific location. It's because the gate to heaven can be found in a specific person. We find it in Jesus. Friends, if this text is telling us it's anything, it's this. God is always with us. God is always with us. And I would add, after reading John chapter 1, God is always with us because of Jesus. It is because of the grace of the cross that God is always present with his people. Because of his grace, God walks with us. When Jacob is in his deepest, darkest moment, he receives good news, assurance that God is with him. And wherever you are today, whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley or somewhere in between, the same promise is for us that God is with us. And it's because of the cross. It is because Jesus said, I am the gate of heaven. I am with you. I will not leave you. Let us rest in that good news because of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice that you are the bridge. That we don't have to go to a specific location. That we don't have to scale steps. Even if they're not made by human hands. God, we rejoice that we can find our home in you. God, I pray that the promise of your presence would ring true in our lives. That we would respond with conviction. That we would respond with reverence and fear. That we would respond by reminding ourselves of the ways that you are with us. We would respond in worship and in generosity, God. Be patient with us. Be gracious to us as we fail. As we fall short, even as Jacob did. As we run to the cross and hold fast to the grace that is offered us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.